0: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.
1: Hello, I'm Tiffany McTaggart.
0: And I'm George Gawley.
1: Welcome along to the Animal Health and Welfare series of podcasts, which is brought to you by the Farm Advisory Service.
0: During 2021, we'll be bringing you eight podcasts.
1: We want to provide you an insight into latest strategies which are being both developed and implemented with the ultimate aim of improving the welfare of our livestock.
0: Over the course of the next year, we'll be disseminating topics such as precision livestock farming, genetics, behavior, disease, and resistance, and how these challenges can be overcome to allow us to meet the challenges of the future.
1: Today I'm talking to Dr Fiona Kenyon and Dr Philip Skoos from the Modern Research Institute. We will discuss their current work in parasites with a focus on roundworms and fluke, including changing parasite behaviours and targeted selective treatments which helps to reduce wormer usage. Hello. Hi. So to start with,
2: what are parasites? Well, parasites are essentially um, organisms that have to live either in or on other animals and they take nourishment or food from that other animal or organism. So we can think of lice or worms or ticks. These are all examples of parasites. But today, as you've said already, we're hoping to focus specifically on
1: worms. Excellent. So can both of you name three clinical signs that you might have a parasite problem? Cool.
2: Um, so yeah, we for roundworm infections, then the most obvious symptoms that you could have a problem tend to be scouring or diarrhea. Um but the thing with worm roundworm infections is that quite often it's a subclinical infection, so it's not so obvious what's going on. And the signs that tell you that something's happening there is that animals can grow poorly. Um, however we know that this can end up in death. So there's quite a spectrum of responses there. So what about Luke, Philip?
3: Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, for fluke, sadly, one of the clinical signs is death, and especially in sheep. It can be very damaging in sheep. And that can happen quite suddenly in a bad fluke year, even to perfectly healthy animals. So it's always worth investigating fallen stock for signs of fluke. Um, in the live animal, uh, you may see signs of anemia, because uh, liver fluke is a blood-feeding parasite. So if you look at the animal's eyes and their gums, they might be pale, and that's a sign that there's a blood-feeding parasite around. Um, so that's wor- worth investigating. But but similar to, to your roundworm's feet. Um, you can see non-specific signs, if you like, of ill-thrift, just animals not doing, poor doers, if you like, uh, and reduced reproductive performance. And are a problem in cattle as well. It's the same parasite in both. So you can see problems in, in dairy cattle as well, reduced milk yield and things like that. So there are production impacts that fall into this kind of subclinical uh, area, if you like.
1: Philip, would you be able to tell us a bit more about liver fluke? Where are they found, and what impact do they have?
3: Yeah, this is where it gets competitive. I mean, liver fluke are fascinating (laughs) creatures. Um, They're much more interesting and complicated than roundworms. Hmm. No disrespect. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, liver fluke is very common um, or prevalent. He's a technical term across the UK, um, especially in the wetter, milder west of the country. Um, It's got a complicated life cycle involving. A tiny little mud snail is an intermediate host that uh, amplifies and spreads infection, which is something the roundworms don't have. Um, so that means that they're kind of really important in the environment and they're exquisitely affected by the climate. So the larval stages and the success of the, the life cycle is, is driven to a large extent by the climate. But that's not, that's not all. Um, but, yeah, at the heart of it is the little mud snail. So fluke could be typically found in, in boggy or wet, low-lying areas or fluky ground, we might call it. Um, I mean, in terms of what they do to livestock, we've mentioned that a little bit earlier, but you can see storms of acute fluke disease where you get uh, animals picking up lots of fluke cysts all at once, so their liver gets absolutely hammered by all the little baby flukes coming through it. And that can be, as I said, very severe in sheep and can cause deaths. You tend not to see that so much in cattle. they are bigger animals, bigger livers, but you can see the chronic infection, which is a buildup of the adults over time, so you get lots of adult fluke, which are, Quite big, about the size of cornflakes. I mentioned that last week, and put Adam Henson off his breakfast. But uh, <laughs> but it isn't. Yeah, they are quite big, big parasites, and can cause uh, significant problems when they establish in the liver. So yeah, they're they're on the ground. They're in a, a major production-limiting endemic disease in this country, and uh, and uh, yeah, quite quite hard to control.
1: Definitely sounds like something farmers should be watching out for. Fiona, can you tell us a bit more about round one? Yes, I can. And I'll have to disagree with Philip about,
2: you know, if fluke are better than roundworms. (laughs) I think roundworms win on all counts anyway. (laughs) So roundworms are found all over the UK and they're they're ubiquitous. So it means that grazing animals could be exposed to them. You know, they will be exposed throughout their lifetime to roundworms. But there's many different types of or species of roundworms that live within the gut and they all live within the gastrointestinal tract from the abomasum to the small intestine and through to the large intestine. Um, and all these different species have slightly different impacts on the animals. Um, so, But the majority of them essentially lead to poor growth which has knock-on effects meaning that the animals take longer to finish and then of course they're on your farm for longer and if they're spreading out worm eggs, then you're contaminating pastures for longer. So um, there's a variety of impacts that roundworms can cause, um, but most of them are related to, you know, this slowing down the growth rate. Um, A few cause anemia like the fluke does. There's one specific parasite species that does that, but most of them it's more chronic um, losses.
1: Okay, so what about tapeworm?
3: Yeah, that falls into I mean, these are technically flatworms. Um, well, apart from the, the the roundworms, these are helminth parasites, so they're technically worms. So there are technically three different groups of them. Uh, Fees mentioned roundworms. I've mentioned flukes, but there is the third. And they're the tapeworms, and they can be quite big and they're quite spectacular when you see them. But I mean, compared to the other two, they're not as important in our livestock um they're not not the best thing hanging out the back end of a of a pedigree animal but um but they're relatively easy to treat and they're relatively easy to spot um but not in my opinion as important uh, to farmers as as fluke and worms okay. we're we're a bit we're a, we a bit lazy just calling them worms because they they are subtly different and I, mean, I would make the case that fluke worms are quite different but tapeworms are different again but they are all technically worms
1: Okay, Um, so climate change is having an impact on farming in many ways. What impact is it having on parasites and in turn livestock? So as Philip's mentioned
2: for the fluke, it's the same as for roundworms, is that they spend a proportion of their time in the environment. So for roundworms, their eggs are passed out in faeces and the egg has hatched and developed into larvae on pasture. So they're in close contact with the environment for a period of time. And there's been some really excellent research conducted where we now know that the rate of development of these parasites on pasture is linked to environmental conditions, for example, temperature and rainfall. So with the warmer and wetter climate that we expect to see due to climate change, we actually will expect that to have a knock-on effect and we'll expect to see parasites being present over a longer period. Um, So starting earlier in the year and persisting for a longer period into um, late autumn. So the impact of having these parasites around for longer is that there could be higher or longer contamination, which could mean that animals pick up more infection um, and are more affected by them. But obviously, we might need to use our wormers or our antimintics more to combat these infections. So we're adding extra pressure on the the use of antimentics and the development of worms that are resistant to those drugs. And also, we might see some parasite infections that occur out with the normal times when they expect when people expect them. So we'll see them at unexpected times of the year, which of course, because you're not expecting it, you might not deal with it or recognise it as quickly. So there's a variety of effects that can come from this um, the changing
1: climate eventually. Okay. Do you have anything to add, Philip?
3: Um no I maybe mean, would be very similar in the sense that liver fluke has these environmental stages, the the, the eggs and the cysts on pasture and, and the snails as well. Um, and a lot of the, the, so the epidemiology, the sort of seasonality and the, the fee mentioned, but also the, the geographic spread and prevalence can be driven to a large extent by, by the weather. But that's not all, because that's not the only thing driving it, because we know fluke is very sort of field and farm specific. But I mean, just to make the point that sort of projected climate change for the UK over the next few years is sort of warmer and wetter, and that's a sort of potentially a paradise for parasites. They like warm and wet. That's why there's such a big problem in, in the tropical countries. Um, As he said, longer grazing seasons equals longer parasite seasons. Um, But from a fluke perspective, you also could have things like extreme flooding events, and they can sweep the snails, the little mud snails, spread them around as well. So there are little parts of that scenario that, that, in a changing climate that these parasites will change by default, and and they will also adapt. They're incredibly adaptable. They're designed to survive most of the things that nature throws at them, including chemicals and climate. um, And yeah, no doubt they'll, they'll survive and find ways to get around that. So we need to be very aware of that and monitoring what's going on, what's changing, what's new, what's different uh, in terms of seasonality. And uh, so that sort of hammers home the message about monitoring that we've all been trying to get onto the testing and don't guess and don't assume too much. Uh, these things, the climate is very changeable and so are these parasites. We need to be very watchful.
1: Okay, so you mentioned monitoring. How can parasites be monitored? Um, so one of the easiest ways that
2: people can monitor what parasites are present is to do something that's called a faecal egg count. And this essentially means taking a sample of faeces from a group of animals, about 10 animals, and looking for the presence of worm eggs in, in the food. Um, this can be done, uh, vet practices offer this service, and there's some commercial companies that can offer it, but there's also some... Uh, Technologies available now where farmers can have their own microscope set up so that they can actually conduct their own egg counts. But essentially, by doing that, you can look at the numbers of eggs present, and that allows you to see where peaks of infection occur, so the peaks, and peaks of pasture contamination occur, and that allows you to kind of see where your infection is on farm and kind of what the peaks are.
3: And just to chip in for fluke it would be pretty similar. They conveniently shed eggs in the host species as well. So there's a a fluke egg count as well. It's done slightly differently, but it tells you the same sort of thing. Um, With the caveat that only adult fluke lay eggs, So these big cornflake sized ones are the egg laying adults. They're already 10 weeks old, so you have to bear in mind how long they've been there and when animals might have picked them up. But it's it's a useful test. It's quite an easy test to run and there is a DIY option. you can run it as a composite test as well. So you can test a single sample from a mob to get a feel. And then go in, you know, a bit more look more closely at individuals if, if you're starting to see eggs appear. Um with fluke we, we're luckier in the sense there's a couple of other tests we can add to that. Um that panel. Um we've got we can look for anti fluke antibodies in blood. and that's a really good indicator of infection in young animals. Um, and they can be used to basically tell you when and where they've picked up infections. So they can be used as sentinels of where where on the farm are they picking that up. That could be sheep or cattle or, or sheep running with cattle, uh, lambs running with cattle. and that, That's really useful. Uh, but we also have an, an, a new test that kind of comes in between the blood test and the egg count. And it's a coprolantigen test. It sounds very technical, but it isn't really. It's a lab test. It picks up a secretion in the host's feces. So as the flukes migrate, through the through the host into the liver and the, through the intestine, they release a secretion that we can detect in the feces, and it's very sensitive. It becomes positive several weeks before the egg count, and it's a really useful indicator of how well a treatment has worked. And that's what it's really been become the default test for efficacy testing. We might mention that later in a minute. But yeah, we're lucky we have a few tests, and and the dairy guys can also look for anti-flu antibodies in in milk, which is quite convenient. So we have some tests, but we could do with farmers using them a lot more than they do with all due respect.
1: Okay, so how often should farmers be carrying out tests, whether it's a fecal egg count or doing one of your liver fluke tests?
2: Um, I think it depends on, you know, what the farmers are trying to do in a sense. If you're just doing routine monitoring, then having you know, any tests are better than none and having repeated tests over time are better than just a single test to get a single snapshot, so looking at monthly or, you know, six weekly or something like that, essentially for the roundworms, probably over the grazing season would be good to allow you to be able to, it's basically monitoring so you can build up information of what parasites or what contamination is present on what fields Um, And that kind of comes into how you can try and manage what's happening on pasture, because if you know when your infection on your farm tends to be most present, then it allows you to predict a little bit of what's happening and, you know, target your treatments to those times or to individual animals, these kind of things. So building up a base of knowledge is the thing that's important. Um, And you can do that through, you know, regular or frequent samples or just taking um, samples just checking egg counts after treatment, you know, just make sure that the drugs that you use work and things. So it's all these kind of things that can build up to give you a good body of information about what's on your farm and how effective the drugs that you use are.
3: Yeah, I think it would be similar with, with fluke. It's that little bit more complicated because there, there are a few more options. But if you can afford to have little groups of sentinel animals that you blood test, that's really useful to tell you exactly when the infection is hit and what treatment you might use down the line. But it's really about knowing what tests are available and what they're telling you about the fluke life cycle. I and mean, obviously we'd like farmers to test regularly, but we know there's a million and one other things to do. <laughs> um, so it's really trying to find a sort of logistically useful, practical test. Um, and some, some of the field work we've done, uh, composite egg counting for fluke once a month, was very useful and really helped us uh, time and, and get the product choice right and has worked really remarkably well. So monthly composite egg counting wouldn't be a bad place to start for mm-hmm. fluke. And maybe if you can afford to run a few blood tests as well, that, that that's quite high resolution information. And as fee says, any information is better than none properly interpreted.
2: Yep. Yeah, and actually for the roundworms as well, you know, we've been doing some work in some of the projects now looking at how uh, accurate composite egg counts are for roundworms compared to individuals and actually they're really quite accurate so even a composite which just means that you take samples from individual animals and pull that into, an, an, into one count that you do so you can have 10 samples and take the same amount of species from each pull that and then do the count and um, they can give you quite an accurate estimate of what's going on within that group of animals so composites are good and cost effective I would think.
1: Sounds very worthwhile to do them. So, if you then go and find that you've got worms, how are you going to go about treating them? Well, there's a range
2: of products available on the market. There are, you know, a vast number of products that can be used as wormers or antomintics as they're known. Um, but the thing to be aware of is that there's only five active classes. So five different drugs are present, um, each used usually singly in the UK. Um, and so the drugs all work in slightly different ways um, and it's important to make sure that we're using the right drug at the right time and the right concentration for the right animals etc etc and we also need to check that the drugs work to make sure that we know that we're using effective products because there is anthelmintic resistance present in the worm population and that means that the worms have developed resistance to the drugs that we um, choose to treat them with and so they are unaffected by that drug treatment um, and for fluke I guess
3: it's similar. Yeah I mean it's a similar story um, but there's a subtle difference in the sense that we don't have that many actives there might be quite a few products on the shelves but and I think farmers do get a wee bit confused about what, the, what they all do and maybe could use warmers with flukicides and um, it's, so it's really important to know what's in the bottle rather than what's on it, because we, we do hear of farmers uh, with respect switching from product to product and actually the same active ingredient. so you haven't actually switched anything uh, with all the best intentions. So it's important that farmers kind of understand that. And there's some really good resources out there from the likes of the Sustainable Control of Parasites and Sheep Group, the SCOPS group. They have lists of uh, all of the available suicides and wormers up, bang up to date, even worm products too. Um, sheep scab products and active parasite treatments, um, same for cattle, the cows group, the sustainable control in cows, they, they have similar product tables that are bang up to date and give you some very useful information about what these products do and what the active ingredients are. So it's important to, to know that. But for, for fluke, we've, we I was going to say we have five actives in for sheep. Um, but as of this week, we might be losing one of the key ones. Uh, Beringer Ingelheim are about to withdraw Trodax, which has been a very useful drug because it can kill immature, so the sort of six to seven week old fluke and older. So it's, a, it's been a very useful product, especially in cattle. Um, but it's being withdrawn, so we're going to have to be careful, well, ultra careful about what we do use going forward. Um, so, I mean, that's really the point. Uh, but the subtle difference with the wormers is that not all flucocides kill all stages. Fluk, uh, yeah, it's that wee bit complicated. Some of the drugs will only kill the adult stages, and there'll be certain times of the year when you don't really have adults. Uh, but there really is only one product that can kill all, pretty much all stages in the, the final host, and that's a product called triclabendazole. And we've got some resistance issues with that, um, which we can maybe mention a little bit about in a minute. But uh, So it's important to use the right product to kill the right stage of fluke in the animals, and that's really best dictated by diagnostic testing to help you work out when were those animals infected and what age of the fluke likely to be now so that you do get an effective treatment. And as Fee says, when you do treat, check that the product has worked as you suspect it, that you think it should. Um, and So it's about making informed decisions, I guess, and, and having evidence that things are, things are going well.
1: Okay. Fiona, you mentioned drug resistance is becoming increasingly common. How can drug resistance be identified?
2: So drug resistance can be identified, as we've said earlier, by um, checking that the drugs that you've used have worked and resistant parasites that are those that have survived treatment with an antelmintic given at the correct growth rate, uh, antelmintic has been stored correctly and all of these things. Um, so we can do this by conducting an egg count uh, looking for the net presence of nematode eggs in the feces of the animal after treatment. Um, there's some really good information as philip mentioned on the scops website about how anthelmintic resistance develops and ways that we can tackle it but the main test that's used at the moment is something called a faecal egg count reduction test and essentially that means that we need to count the number of worm eggs present in the animals at the time of treatment and then depending on the drug that's used a certain time uh, post-treatment um, and if Worm eggs are present after treatment, and that's an indication that the the drugs haven't worked well and um, properly. But it's important to note that the different species of roundworm that I mentioned earlier can have different susceptibilities to the drug. So just because a drug didn't work well at one particular point in the season, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that that drug can never be used on your farm again. It may be that when that drug was when you applied that treatment, there was one species of parasites most prevalent in the in the animals um, that's been resistant. But if you test again later on, then the species switch may have happened and the, the drug might work more effectively. Um, and that's something that we're kind of interested in at the moment is how we can try and understand what species are present. We've got some new techniques where we can actually look at a molecular level of what species are present in the animals. And um, Up until now, this has been something that's been possible, but only by looking down a microscope at individual worms, so hundreds of individual worms or larvae need to be looked at so that we can try and identify the species that are present. So, as you can imagine, it's a highly skilled, technical, labour intensive and slow process to do it down a microscope. But we now have new methods where we can use uh, the genetic information that's present in the parasites from a faecal sample, for example, and that'll tell us what species of worms are present. Um, So we're looking at studies at the moment to see how well this works and if it can be something that can be made more accessible to farmers. Um, And we've been working with some farmers through a project that's funded by the Veterinary Medicines Directorate. And we're working with an excellent group of farmers who have been sending in fecal samples to my colleague, Lindsay Melville. She's been inundated with packets of poo, basically. every time they treat their animals. And from that, we can work out how well the drugs have worked, but also what species are present before and after, before and after treatment. Um, And hopefully that would help in the future to be able to identify which species are resistant and therefore what drugs could be used when on farm.
3: Yeah, we do have a bit of a resistance issue there too. It's subtly different in the sense that we've only detected resistance to one of the five actives in the UK, um, but arguably it's the most important one, it's triclabendazole, that product that can kill when it's working on susceptible populations, it can kill right down to two days of age in sheep and two weeks of age in cattle, depending on the formulation. Um, so, I mean, it's really important that farmers check how well triclabendazole is working for them, and if it's working well, by all means, use it strategically. That unsparingly. But uh, the best way to do it is also a faecal egg counterduction test. It's maybe not quite as statistically robust as, as the, the worms because fluke lay eggs when they feel like it. It's, it's slightly more random, but it's still a very useful test. Uh, so You'll be taking faecal samples from a group of animals on the day of treatment and then again three, three weeks later for fluke. Um, three weeks is to allow any eggs in the system, in the, in the liver system, to, to come out. It takes a bit of time to come out. And if the treatment is working, you should have a significant reduction in the egg count. And You should see that. Um, as I say, it's not quite as, as sharp as a, a readout as you get with the, the worm egg count, but it, it's very useful. And, and possibly a better test nowadays is the copper antigen test. You can use that. In a reduction test as well. So it becomes a copper antigen reduction test. So you test the copper antigen levels on a group of animals individually on the day of treatment and then come in again three weeks later, same animals and test individually. And that will tell you how well your products work. But you you could advocate doing that with any fluicide treatment, although it becomes quite difficult to interpret what's happening because um, none of the fluicides are persistent. So if animals are still outside grazing, there's always a potential they're picking up new infection, which just complicates things. Uh, it shouldn't be an issue with products that kill the very early stages, but if it can be for the products that only kill adults. So you maybe get a 70% kill and that's about as good as it gets for some of the adulticides. And then the next three weeks later you've got immatures that are now three weeks older and laying eggs and just contributing to the confusion. So it's, it's a little bit hard to interpret and it needs sort of veterinary input and veterinary advice. But the fecal egg count reduction test and or a couple of antigen reduction tests should, should tell you quite a lot about how well your treatments work. But we need to be careful with triclobendazole. It's a really valuable product um, because of the ability to kill this fluke within that first six weeks of age. And none of the others can do that.
1: I think getting uh, veterinary d- advice is always useful. Um, they're the people on the ground and seeing what's going on on your farm. Um, so management can also play a part in reducing the reliance on drugs. What management options are available to help reduce fluke? Right, we're
3: going to go to fluke first. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because it, it, the infection really does cycle on the ground and it, 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 the, it, the risk is dictated by who's grazing where and when. Um, I mean, the mantra has always been to sort of you know, think about fencing and drainage and um, I mean, there's kind of four things farmers can think about in terms of flu control. Housing is one, to take animals out of harm's way, and a lot of cattle farmers will do that. Increasingly sheep farmers might even do that too, take the farm, the, the, the animals in over the winter, take them out of harm's way. Um, but, I mean, most people treat, uh, but we have already kind of talked about that, but fencing and drainage are always put up there, but they're not as simple as people might think. It's not that straightforward because you uh, you might as well put a, a fence around the whole of the farm keep the animals out if it's a fluky farm. Um, but, so that's something to think about, you, trying to keep animals out of fluky areas at fluky times but it requires you to know what those times are and what that habitat looks like. So You need to have a feel for the glute life cycle and the mud snail habitat and, and know what the weather's doing. Um, I mean drainage is, was always an option as well to try and make the farmer field less snail friendly um, but increasingly Agri-environment schemes are discouraging that. So drains are actually being blocked up and fields are being re-wetted uh, for, for various agri-environment schemes for to promote biodiversity or encourage wetland birds or, or whatever the environmental benefits are. Um, so it, it, I guess it's just, again, around making informed decisions about who's grazing where and when. With some of these schemes, you require these areas to be grazed. Others, you don't. You know, So some of them are actually potentially a good thing for in terms of fluke risk, others are maybe not sure about that. That requires investigation, and, and, and increasing, you know, an interesting example would be around grazing around trees. That's become a bit of a new thing silviculture, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the trees actually make the ground relatively dry, and they provide shade and various other benefits to the animals. So you know, there's a lot of interest around sort of worm and fluke risk in these kinds of environments. Um, again, it requires some investigation to find out. Yeah, what the win-wins are but there might well be some in some of these environmental setups.
1: Okay and Fiona what about management options to reduce worms? There's a good
2: variety of management options uh, in some ways really it's trying to minimize the challenge that the animals are exposed to and um, so we know that animals can cope with a light challenge if you like of worms usually can cope relatively well with that, but as the challenge gets higher and then we see increased production losses. So trying to minimise that challenge is a a way to try and cope with worm infections. So for example, things like grazing management or rotational grazing can all help. We know that uh, lambs tend to carry higher levels of parasites than uh, the adult animals. Um, So the lambs will be the ones that are mostly contaminating your fields. although the ewes will also contaminate fields quite heavily during lactation. Um, so then you, because you know that these are the, the groups of animals that will be contaminating the pastures, you can also then use other more immune animals to act as hoovers, if you like, and hoover up these infective larvae on pasture. So, for example, grazing lambs and then following that with um dried off yows or you know older hogs or things can help to reduce pasture contamination. pasture contamination in that.
1: Yeah. Okay, so what can we do to slow the development of resistance?
2: Um so again, as we've said before, there's many options on the the SCOPS website. So always a good start to look there at things like making sure you're using an effective product and you're um Pro, your equipment's been calibrated and works well. That you're doing effective quarantine drenching, so you're not bringing resistant parasites onto your farm, um, are all really important things to think about. Um, but actually dealing with it on farm, you know, we know that a lot of farmers out there have problems with resistance on their farm. Um, so how can we think about slowing that development um, when you're because you still need to use wormers to treat your animals as a you know, as a prophylactic or a curing treatment clinical treatment, so we 've been looking at treating just the individual animals that will need a treatment rather than all the treatment all the animals in the group, so we know that not that some animals can carry their worm burdens quite happily and it doesn 't affect them or their performance um, but others don 't so it kind of you know why treat animals that are coping well with our parasite challenge we don 't need to waste time and money and effort and drug um, on those animals. So the theory really stems from the idea that um, by treating all the animals in a group at the one time, then this can really drive the development of antimentic resistance because all of the worms are exposed to this drug at the one time. But if you only treat some of them, then you're reducing that drive, that push for um, the development of resistance. And you also can have some susceptible parasites maintained at the same time as, you know, is when you drug treatment, you only re- leave the resistant parasites. When you just treat some animals, only some animals are putting out only resistant parasites, whereas others are still passing out susceptibles. And so you can have this effect that you dilute the resistant parasites, basically. So the way that we've been doing that is something called targeted selective treatment. So you just treat the individual animals. And we've been doing it on a on the basis of weight gain. So we've been predicting what a minimum baseline weight for animals should be. A minimum target for animals should be using a system called the happy factor and the idea is that animals are continuing to perform well and reach above this minimum target are happy and those that don't reach that minimum target are sad or need treatment and and help to cope with their worm infection. Um, so we've been testing this for a Good long while now, but we've tested it on our own modern farm and also on several commercial farms, and we find that compared with several other treatment approaches, and for example, a monthly treatment, we can reduce the amount of drug that we use by fifty percent, but we don't see any losses in animal growth and performance. So they continue to gain weight at the same rate as um, the monthly treated animals, where all of them are treated every month, and we also know that it slows the development of antimicrobial resistance. So The efficacy of the drug, how well the drug works is maintained over time. And finally, using these kind of targeted selective treatment approaches with um, electronic identification tags and automatic weighing scales can reduce labour and reduce costs and also reduce greenhouse gas emissions because your animals are treated quickly and effectively at the first signs of infection. So we've been working now for about a year with an Innovate-funded project which is called smart sheep and basically that is trying to um, use this algorithm the happy factor and take it into a platform where farmers will be able to access it by themselves that's been one of the bottlenecks with this project up until now so it's actually been tested on 16 farms across the country We're again working with another excellent group of farmers who are really engaged to help us test this technology on their farm and see if it'll work and suggest improvements and things. so yeah, that's something that is quite exciting. We're hoping that it can be you know, user-friendly and simple and quick and easy for farmers to use and derive benefits in lots of ways, including slowing the development of antimicrobial. That that's
1: sounds fun. very exciting. <laughs> very exciting um so when do you think this could potentially be available to farmers once Woo! you've um, had your 16 <laughs> <laughs> test farms <laughs> so well we've let say we've been working we've got an 18 month funded
2: project from innovate which is we've just had we've just done 12 months of it so we have software developed we have um a platform available and it's been tested and validated i think we're identifying there's some kind of There's some issues not associated with the software and things that we're doing, but more with the fact that quite a lot of, um, you know, the technology and the kit that's out there for farmers to use is really amazing. um, But there's not always the support for farmers and the training and to understand exactly what the the power that this kit can have, you know, automatic weigh heads and weighing scales. So I think there's maybe some work to be done there to make sure that we're doing enough to educate people on how they can use it. Um I would really hope to see it in the next year or two. But I think there's probably going to need to be some additional funding. Just, you know, we've made huge strides, but I think there might be other little tweaks that will just really make it really simple for people to use. So you'll notice there that I managed to body swear I've given an actual date. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Secondly, I'll watch this space. <laughs> yes,
2: watch this space. I will tell you as soon as we have something that can be used
1: by, by more people. That's very exciting. Do you have anything to add, Philip?
3: Yeah, I could I could muddy muddy the water a little bit with fluke, if you pardon the pun. Uh, the, the approach that we described very nicely there is technically targeted selective treatment, or TST for short. Uh, it's a wee bit more complicated with fluke as it always is. Um, I, mean, for one, I'm not sure how the whole this whole refugia, uh, where the susceptible parasites are, works for fluke because it's it is complicated by having the snails there. They 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 will clone whatever eggs are coming out. Of, of the animals, resistant or susceptible, and where that susceptible population is and how you maintain that for fluke is quite challenging. So I, for one, don't understand that well enough. And also farmers, I think, are a wee bit afraid of fluke. Um, they're afraid to leave animals untreated if they know flukes about. Um, and we don't want to, uh, and, and and it comes down to sort of blanket treatment. So when they do treat, they'll treat everything. Um, so that that's that knocks this sort of TST on the head a bit as a, as an approach. So I think there's a there's a bit of research required there. Um, and I think yeah you know, farmers might need to be brave to to leave animals untreated if this sleepide. so I mean, we might need to think of of something something else. I think I mean using what knowledge we already have and you know sort of best practice, it's still around being very careful with trilobendazol. It's a really good product, and we need to keep it uh, active as long as we can. so it it still comes back to the correct timing and uh, the correct product choice supported by diagnosis and monitoring. So it's all about test don't guess. Um, for flu, I think it's just to try and take the pressure off the product where we are starting to see products creaking. Uh, we, we don't want to sort of switch wholesale to Clozantel or whatever's next in line and, and make that resistant because then we really are running out of options. So it's about being strategic and doing some diagnostic testing and to help you make good timing, good product choices.
1: Great. That has been very interesting and informative and definitely some strong key messages coming through there. <laughs> Thank you, both of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great welcome. talking to you.
3: Yeah. And i say, I mean, if folks I think, if want to find out more, I think there's some very carefully crafted information on Scops and Cow's websites. But more take a wee bit of credit for doing some ourselves we, we've been we've said test don't guess a few times in this podcast and it's become our mantra this last while and it applies to pretty much everything so have a, have a wee look on the morden website to some quite neat little animations that try and explain mm-hmm. some of the things that the and i <laughs> tried manfully to explain in person but uh, hopefully that makes it easier to understand and makes it a bit more logical um it's complicated That's and we're full of admiration for farmers. who have to juggle all the other things and try and deal with parasites. It's okay for us to be fascinated by them. Farmers just want to get rid of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely a great (laughs) signpost, that. Thank you. Thank you to all the researchers who are taking their time to participate in this eight-part series, providing an interesting insight into their research and findings. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you have enjoyed it.
0: You can find out about all the other podcasts in the series, on the Farm Advisory Service website or from your usual podcast provider along with many other podcasts available on a whole range of topics. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service and the work we are doing by visiting our website on www.fas.scot or if you need advice please call the helpline on 0300 3230 one sex one.